Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's my pleasure to invite back into the studio today a good friend of ours, Oliver Delacosta Stunkel, who is a an associate professor of international relations in Brazil at FGV in Sao Paulo. Along with a number of colleagues, as I pointed out earlier, he um, has established a new school of international relations. Today, though, I wanted to sit down with Oliver to discuss with him uh, the new uh, president, Jair Bolsonaro. His election uh, recently, of course, brings to an end a significant number of years in which the left has been uh, governing in Brazil. As a reminder, of course, um, uh, our colleague Oliver has written extensively on the politics of the rising powers, including the BRICS and the future of the global order, and his most recent book from Polity, Post-Western World, How Emerging Powers Are Remaking the Global Order. He is also a frequent commentator on the hemisphere in journals and in the media across the region. It's my pleasure to once again sit down with Oliver to look at some of these issues in Brazil. Well, it's a, a real pleasure to have you back, Oliver. Um, uh, are you there? I am. Oh, good. Pleasure uh, is mine. Oh, it's it's great. And this is, of course, episode nine, uh, which is really uh, giving you an opportunity and for us to listen to your views on uh, Brazil's new populist president and the new government as well. So, Oliver, let me start off by sa- by asking you, uh, as you're aware, um, the president uh, attended in Davos this, uh, this past week, and he gave uh, a um, speech uh, to uh, the uh, collected group in Davos, and it appeared that uh, there was a you know fair bit of anticipation uh, in listening to him. He spoke for a mere six minutes. Uh, what 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 what's that all about? Well, that was the uh, big surprise in Brazil as well, actually. So people have actually set time apart, uh, even here in Brazil. So several uh, universities and uh, banks and think tanks, uh, people uh, were uh, expecting uh, perhaps the most detailed mm-hmm. uh, speech about how the president would seek to face uh, the biggest challenge of all, which is the stagnant economy. Brazil has been through a uh, recession of of the past years and uh this is his biggest challenge his biggest mandate is to fix the economy right uh so this was supposed to be the coming out sort of the moment when he would tell not only the uh the you know international audience but also uh observers and investors and you know the markets in brazil yeah uh what he would seek to do uh, so uh, it was a, a big surprise uh, when it turned out that uh, his speech was uh, quite similar to the speeches that he had given during the campaign. Fairly superficial, uh, short on detail, mm-hmm. uh, not really speaking the language of the people who were also attending in Davos. And I think, uh, of course, everybody said, you know, what happened? And I think what uh, what, what actually happened is in for, for this but to understand, it's just important to know the background that 
uh, his government is made up of three pillars, uh, three camps that compete for power. You have kind of a Trumpist, anti-globalist, nationalist faction, uh-huh. which is the first group. Yep. You have the military, yep. uh, which is the second, and you have sort of the the, the, the Chicago boys, uh, which here are actually called the Chicago oldies. They've all st- uh, several of them have studied Chicago. They sort of embrace uh, neoliberal policies, but they're all uh, quite old. So these are kind of the neoliberal economists, and uh, and the expectation was. That Paulo Guedes, his uh, minister of finance, would write the speech. He's very much aware yep. of what the president should have said. But it turns out that in this battle for power, the person who wrote the speech is part of the Trumpist anti-globalist team. Very limited knowledge of how Davos works, how the markets work. Uh, so in the end, uh, this camp was able to convince the president that it should be uh, responsible for the speech. So I think, and that is, that gives us the, uh, it's the perfect example of the difficulties that uh, the president will have because uh, the economists who do have the right ideas, I think who've basically diagnosed the problem, it's fairly obvious. So the kinds of uh, fixes Brazil needs, pension reform, bureaucratization, reducing the role of the state, et cetera. Uh, but there are other forces at play uh, that may make that difficult. And I think uh, to many in Brazil uh, who had given the president the benefit of the doubt, despite all the difficulties and all the you know scandals and the, 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 the highly controversial rhetoric uh, uh, he has employed over the past years, who had given him the benefit of the doubt, I think we're uh, quite disappointed by his performance in Davos. Well, you you had to blink. It was a, it was a mere uh, six minutes. But let me let me kind of get you to to kind of for the uh, for our listeners get a better sense. I mean, where does uh, Jair Bolsonaro kind of fit uh, in the um, uh, political spectrum in Brazil? You've said there are kind of three factions there. How does how does he fit into Brazilian politics? He's been there for a while, for sure. He, he has been there for a while. He's been a congressman for nearly three decades, uh-huh. um, but a fairly obscure uh, uh, congressman who is uh, seen as a fringe uh, politician, somebody who had you know extreme views. Uh, and who never actually articulated any meaningful, uh, you know, legislative proposals. Uh, so uh, in that sense, he uh, never was, he was never part of the mainstream uh, of Brazilian politics. And in a way, uh-huh. I think uh, he was able to uh, ride the wave of uh, rejection and, and widespread sort of disgust with the entire political system because Brazil uh, was uh, embroiled, I think the entire political system was embroiled in sort of a continuous corruption scandal combined with economic crisis for um, most of five years, where the country, I think, had been largely rudderless. The perception of the public uh, was that a radical change was necessary uh, in order to uh, successfully address a series of, of profound challenges. Mm-hmm. And I, I would, uh, I would uh, focus here in particular uh, on, on three issues, uh, which uh, are, is the economy, first of all, uh, is the continuous economic crisis, 
uh, corruption, so the, uh, the moral decay that was being perceived um, uh, in the population that, you know, everybody's corrupt, basically. And the third is this public security issue. We have uh, over 60,000 homicides in, uh, in Brazil per year. Uh, and this has been growing even throughout uh, times of economic growth uh, over the past decade. So this is a, a problem that n no single government has been able to successfully address. Mm -hmm. And because of these, this triple crisis, in a way, uh, somebody like Bolsonaro was able to uh, represent himself as a complete outsider, uh, purposefully adopting an extremely controversial language. Uh, in order to sort of stick out because, uh, you know, you had a large field of, of candidates, but because of this sort of, you know, consistently outrageous behavior, racism, homophobia, anti-women, uh, you know, and a complete lack of content actually uh, allowed him to be seen as something entirely apart from all the others. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the winning strategy, also having uh, learned a lot of things from the Trump campaign in 2016, and I think has been able to exploit a uh, perception in Brazilian society that a lot of the um, structures of you know, Congress, the presidency, etc., are not trustworthy. Uh, and mo the Brazilians mostly trust um, the church and the military. And he was able, because of his military past uh, and his alliance with uh, uh, socially conservative groups mm -hmm. and a uh, liberal uh, economist who he promised would be his minister of finance. Uh, he was very, in, in a very sophisticated way, able to build an alliance uh, that uh, basically upended Brazil's political system. It has basically destroyed the moderate right uh, and has very much diminished uh, the left as well. So the uh, because of his election, the entire political system will be restructured uh, over the next years. Let me let me take you to this question of the economy because you clearly point to it as a a major issue for Brazilian voters, and in particular, let me take you uh, to uh, the new finance minister, Paulo. Uh, is it Gregis? Gregis. Paulo Gages, yeah. Gages. Uh, now, he's the new finance minister, and as you pointed out early, earlier in our discussion, he he kind of comes from, well, in, in fact, I think, I don't know, did he teach at Chicago? But he certainly... Um, he studied uh, there. He actually yeah. taught, uh, it's quite interesting, he taught in Chile, Chile. On, yeah. at the time of Pinochet, uh, for, some, uh, for some time when several of, uh, you know, sort of neoliberal economists and people who had studied in, in Chicago yeah. uh, had, uh, were engaged in policymaking. So this is kind of, uh, you know, in, in, this goes so far, by the way, that the president, Bolsonaro himself, will uh, make his first bilateral visit to Chile, Chile because this yeah. is kind of what yeah. he would like to project. Uh, uh, exactly. This is, this is the kind of person he's, he's chosen. Yeah. So, so what is uh, the finance minister, but presumably also the president, what are they offering on the economic side? What is the, the neoliberalism that Gages is, uh, Gages is, is uh, promoting? And, uh, well, what is that policy that, that they're putting forward? Well, I think they're, uh, uh, particularly Gages has, um, has actually uh, laid out a fairly sensible uh, strategy. The president himself has um, 
in a, a quite a, a quite a smart way, by the way, has continuously said he doesn't understand anything about economics. Uh, and <laughs> that may be uh, true. Would, <laughs> that is certainly true. And <clears throat> and the uh, particularly investors, uh, uh, you know, were um, uh, quite uh, disappointed by Dilma Rousseff's personal. Uh, decision to sort of you know participate on very specific technical economic debates. She has a master's degree. This is the uh, former economics, president, the take. former president, yeah. and that led to a profound crisis. So whenever people said, "Well, how come you know don't you think it's a problem that you don't understand anything about uh, economics?" Uh, he would reply and say, "Well, uh, my predecessor, Jumar Rousseff, uh, studied economics, and you know you know see where that got us." Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, but it was also seen as a very smart move as a guarantee to investors that he would not intervene and he would allow his minister of finance, who's very well respected uh, amongst economists and investors, uh, that basically his minister of finance would have a free hand okay. to actually <clears throat> implement the, uh, the the reforms needed. Now, what basically, uh, he, I mean, his uh, minister of finance is, is, is uh, somewhat of a, a radical. Right. When it comes to neoliberal policy, is basically uh, during the campaign and different moments promised to privatize about everything of uh -huh. all the state-owned uh, um, companies in Brazil. It must be said, Brazil is one of the clo most closed economies in the world. Uh, it does have the, the state plays a huge role, and I think it's fair to say that that has uh, led to distortions. Uh, for many, many years in Brazil, that has uh, made uh, Brazil's economy not competitive. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It has uh, it has uh, made inequality worse. Uh, there is a lot of um, uh, privileges that uh, you know people in the in the public sector have. Uh, in general, that makes you know life for entrepreneurs difficult in Brazil. Uh, and it's it's quite interesting that um, Paulo Guedes, before he joined the Bolsonaro team, he actually advised another candidate uh, who was basically a centrist, uh, who ended up pulling out of the presidential race. Uh, so in that sense, uh, I would say a lot of people said, you know. Uh, this is a this is a fairly capable person who's who's basically got the right ideas. Um, I think what's much less clear is to what extent the minister of finance uh, is able to implement those things, because as always, these are painful reforms. Pension reform uh, is about uh, you know taking away, uh, away people's privileges right. that they uh, have grown used to uh, for a long time. And these are very powerful organized interest groups. Uh, and in Brazil, it's a, you know, these groups have been, again, for many decades, been able to extract a lot of benefits from the state because they're extremely well organized. Um, so a lot of doubts about to what extent the president is able to take on those organized groups uh, because many because many of them have been supportive of the president. So they're part of his electorate. For example, the military has been largely supportive of Bolsonaro. But the military is also one of the areas that is most in need uh, of reform when it comes to the existing pensions, which are extremely generous. Uh, so in order to implement a, uh, a you know, sufficient or a, a good pension reform, you must include the military. I see. Uh, and it's not, not at all clear uh, whether this government is able to, uh, um, you know, to, to confront these, uh, these groups. Um, so... 
the other issue I think which is worth pointing out is that uh, Gedges is a classic free trader. He's a he's a uh, he's in favor of globalization. He wants to strengthen Brazil's role uh, uh, in the world economy. Now, uh, and, and I said, you know, this is the third group which I, uh, I previously referred to. Now. There's uh, the second group, the military, yeah. which has during the campaign said the vice president is a general. Uh, I, I would say about a third of all the key decision makers in the Bolsonaro government, cabinet members, etc., are generals. These people have a very different notion about Brazilian national interest. Uh, they, for example, disagree that some uh, companies, state-owned companies, which they consider to be uh, strategic, uh, that they should be privatized. I, for example, uh, I think the military will not allow Petrobras yeah. or Eletobras, big Brazilian companies, which are would, would you, in, in any kind of privatization move would be considered to be the crown jewels, you know, which really would generate a lot of money. They will not allow these to, to be privatized. Uh, and then you have the, the Trumpists, the anti-globalists, which is sort of the heart of the Bolsonaro uh, government. These people are afraid of globalization. They are, you know, they 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 think climate change is is a Marxist uh, conspiracy. They are <laughs> anti-China. Uh, you know, though the people who think global governance is uh, is, is a scheme directed by George Soros. So, so these is this is a group that if you if you really look at them, you say, well, this is a very very difficult marriage that uh, that the the neoliberals have agreed to because. Uh, the, the first group dreams of replicating a Trumpian foreign policy. Yeah. Now, a Trumpian foreign policy is not about, you know, reducing uh, tariffs unilaterally in the way that Paulo Gages would like to, um, you know, debureaucratizing, reducing the role of the state, which involves, of course, also allowing certain industries in Brazil to die uh, because they're just not competitive. Um, so the big question is, how do these three groups get along? Who wins the key battles? Right, uh, and we've already seen that the uh, economists have suffered uh, several defeats. Uh, uh, for example, um, the uh, president insists on moving uh, the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is important for the Trumpists to show Trump that they're really aligned with the United States. Now, that of course uh, makes life for the economists difficult because they would like to assure that Brazil continues to have good trade relationships. With the Arab world, I see. Uh, in in that sense, you already see that uh, merely a couple of weeks into the new government, a lot of uh, tensions appear, and it really will depend on the capacity of the minister of finance to navigate this very tricky political environment. Okay. Well, so let me let me tick these things off. You've identified that uh, Brazil has a very significant state-owned enterprise. Sector. I'm told something like 147 state-owned enterprises. That's right. And you've already uh, indicated that because of some of the factions, uh, the military in this case, the state oil company is likely not on the table uh, to privatize nor electricity. So there are question marks around that. Secondly, yes, um, Gadget wants reform, and I take it it's a very expensive pension system. As you suggested, nevertheless, uh, you know it's not likely. Uh, maybe, maybe that's going to change. That the military is going to be part of that reform effort uh, on this right. system. Uh, my understanding is that Brazil has a particularly complex tax 
system. Uh, That's and, right. And there is some effort uh, to try and uh, simplify the tax system. Uh, you can tell me whether or not that's very likely. And finally, uh, I understand that there's a 7% physical deficit. That is a year-to-year budget deficit because, obviously, um, the government is spending significantly more than the revenues it's taking in. Um, that's right. So, uh, uh, Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the, the challenge is gigantic. Uh, I think if the president uh, understands one thing is that uh, his success will depend above all on his capacity to uh, deliver uh, at least something when it comes okay. to uh, economic reforms. Uh, what a, a political experience shows is that unless the president is able to deliver uh, economic growth, uh, all the other uh, things are bound to fail. Okay. Uh, you have, uh, for example, and, and even when it comes to corruption, for example, as if you deliver significant growth, uh, people will not care very much about corruption scandals. So it's really quite interesting. Yeah. So uh, in a way, um, uh, the assuring uh, so high growth uh, is kind of a protective layer that will reduce the political impact of all kinds of scandals that basically come up in every single government. Sure. Uh, sure. Um, so in that sense, uh, uh, he understands that. Uh, he has uh, been able to uh, engage the military already. Uh, several extra the vice president himself has said uh, it is necessary to include the military. In the reform, there's, of course, resistance within the armed forces. So that's something uh, which you know, will uh, become more apparent over the next weeks, how, how that turns out. But basically, we say that uh, the president must make a major steps in the right direction when it comes to pension reform within the next six months. Really? Uh, if okay. he doesn't, uh, uh, basically, there will be a government shutdown in the middle of the year 2019. Um, the, the, uh, basically, all of the government spending is tied, uh, uh, is tied uh, in a sense that the government is virtually unable to make any investments. Yep. Um, and even that then could come to a halt uh, in the middle of uh, 2019. So that must be uh, – there's a clear perception that this is a priority. Now, uh, these are, of, call, these are of course, um, uh, political issues, the highly politicized and – the government uh, uh, must excel at uh, navigating Congress. And this is something uh, that has been a major challenge for all previous governments. Uh, we have uh, more than 20 different parties. A lot of them have no particular uh, ideology, uh, and their major interest is, um, uh, you know, gaining pork or, you know, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> public sector jobs. Uh, in return for uh, uh, supporting reform. Uh, now, this is precisely the kind of horse trading that the president has vowed to end. Uh, but paradoxically, he will need precisely that in order to push through the reforms. I see. Uh, now, his predecessor, Temer, uh, has been perhaps the most sophisticated and knowledgeable person when it comes to how to navigate Congress, how to negotiate and he's been unable to approve pension reform. Mm -hmm. uh, Bolsonaro has named a former general 
who has, by the way, led P- uh, the UN peacekeeping uh, mission in the Congo. Uh, so somebody who's quite, uh, uh, you know, quite imposing and some would say a bit, some, a bit threatening, but certainly not somebody who knows how to navigate Congress. <laughs> uh, so the big question mark is, uh, and you mentioned, you know, the fiscal deficit. I mean, all yep. these are things that involve, you know, getting everybody <laughs> on board, uh, uh, you know, innovative coalition building and all these kinds of things. And the big question investors are asking is to what extent are the people Bolsonaro has chosen, who many of whom have limited experience when it comes to operating in Brasilia, yep. to what extent are these people uh, able <clears throat> To uh, uh, you know, to to find the majority uh, to to implement these reforms that are necessary. Let, let me ask you one last question around these uh, very difficult economic uh, questions, but it's slightly separate. That is the corruption aspect. I mean, some argued the reason he was so limited in what he was prepared to say uh, in Davos uh, was the fact that corruption charges have now been raised against. His uh, son, who is, I take it, uh, uh, a senator um, in in Brazil. Yes, he is. Uh, he has won. He's uh, he's won the uh, seat in the Senate. Yeah, uh, he has been a politician for for quite some time as well. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, and actually, he has uh, three sons that who are politically active, and the the, the son uh, in question is is one of the is, is I would say one of the most powerful politicians. Uh, in the country, so quite a visible figure in, in that sense. Yeah. So, so how serious is this, or is this something, you know, the president can sidestep uh, one way or another? So, so people, uh, some people voted for him, uh, looking only at the economics, turning a blind eye on uh, on all the other issues, considering that several of his proposals, when it comes to public security and corruption, were incredible. Um, and I think the key issue. Uh, here is that Bolsonaro has uh, depicted uh, corruption uh, as a moral issue. Uh, and I think that uh, particularly pol- uh, political scientists who have li- looked at uh, Brazil's uh, system, uh, electoral system, uh, have said that the, it's a structural problem. There's been massive corruption in all governments uh, over the past decades. And that uh, one of the crucial difficulties that uh, go- uh, uh, that governments have had is to find majorities, because even if you win in a landslide uh, or uh, if you win a decisive victory, uh, as Bolsonaro has done, uh, he only commands around 10 percent of Congress uh, with his party. Right. Now, um, so which will make it difficult for him to find a governing majority. Uh, and in the past, governments have basically solved that uh, by engaging in corruption, basically, to uh, make the political system work. Now, uh, the, the particular case of, of his son, I think, yes, is quite significant because he's clearly won on a, an anti-corruption ticket. Uh, and uh, his sons are seen as extremely close advisors, have been very much involved during the campaign. Uh, and the fact that uh, uh, so quickly things have come up, uh, which uh, neither the president nor the president's son have been able to explain in a, in a satisfactory manner, uh, generates a lot of doubts and is particularly harmful for voters who have primarily voted for the president uh, because they believe that he could uh, stop the moral decay 
that they perceived as the major problem afflicting Brazilian politics. There is, I think, an aggravating problem, which is, I mean, uh, that uh, in addition to engaging in a very old school sort of way of corruption, which is basically uh, to uh, uh, to instead of employing uh, a parliamentary, uh, parliamentary advisors, which uh, every parliamentarian has a right to do, basically uh, these uh, uh, people just cash in. Uh, uh, the salaries that are supposed to be spent on advisors and take the money themselves. Uh, and so these people who his son was uh, had listed as his advisors, uh, uh, you know, one actually, never, you know, didn't live in Brazil at the time. Another one, uh, you know, worked as a, a personal fitness trainer. So these people had other jobs, uh, but they were still receiving public money supposedly for advising uh, the president's son. Uh, there's a lot of doubts about that, but there's an aggravating factor, which is that um, uh, th- there's now uh, growing evidence uh, that the president's son has ties to yeah. uh, uh, the militias, uh, <clears throat> which are very much engaged in sort of organized crime, political violence, and even perhaps uh, members of the militias who've been involved in the assassination of a councilwoman, a very a popular councilwoman. Uh, progressive left-wing uh, human rights defender, uh, you know, internationally quite visible, who was uh, assassinated uh, in early 2018. So this obviously generates a whole new set of problems, uh, particularly amongst also people who've said, you know, I'm going to vote for Bolsonaro to precisely combat these groups which are uh, right. responsible for the lack of public security in big cities such as Rio de Janeiro. Uh, so big doubts about that. Uh, the, the, today, a major newspaper uh, has said that the best way uh, for the president, so the best uh, solution would be for the president son not to uh, not to join the Senate uh, in order to protect his father. Uh, now, I'm quite skeptical that it's going to happen, but we do certainly have uh, the first political scandal, and that is set to end the brief honeymoon that uh, the president has had very early on in his uh, in his mandate. Well, let me let me kind of end on this question then, uh, uh, Oliver. Do you? I mean, you leave. One gets a sense that you don't believe that this president is likely to be able to stay ahead of, of public and popular expectations. Is that kind of the way you're thinking at this point? I mean, it's certainly true that um, you know if you're uh, if he if you, somebody comes in as an outsider and sort of says you know we're going to change just about everything, right? Uh, uh, and you have such a diverse set of, of 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 voters who have put you in office for very very different reasons, with very different expectations, uh, that you're bound to disappoint some people. I think that is irrespective of, of, of who's now in power, that's going to be the case. Um, now, uh, certainly uh, we could uh, say that because of this initial corruption scandal, the pressure on the president to deliver when it comes to the economy is even greater. Um, and a lot will depend on this camp to impose itself on both the military and the uh, anti-globalists um, uh, in order to really get the economy, economy moving going. again. If, yep. Exactly. Once that happens, I think a lot of other things may fall into place. 
But because of the particular uh, way that power is distributed in this new government, uh, I think uh, there is a significant chance that it will spend uh, time infighting. Yeah. Uh, because of the high number of people who are not politically experienced, we're already seeing that there's a lot of tensions within the coalition. So within his party, even, there's a lot of fighting. It usually takes place via the media, via social media. So uh, very limited party discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhat similar to the White House uh, in, in Washington, <laughs> the Trump White House, where you see a lot of people sort of talking to the press, leaking things. So the government is losing time, precious time, to get sort of necessary reforms uh, into place. So um, I would say, particularly uh, when we look at um, at the economy, I think you, st- you may, may still have some hope that important reforms may be implemented. Uh, so far, uh, the finance minister has actually uh, presented reasonable micro reforms, small steps yep. that point into the right direction. But particularly when it comes to corruption and public security, two major issues uh, that people care about, I think it's it's also important to prepare for a lot of uh, a disappointment. And I think a lot will depend on how the president is able to deal with that disappointment and assure that at least his voters focus on the, the things that he uh, plans to get by. Well, I really want to uh, thank you, Oliver, for giving us this kind of a broad view of this new uh, president of Brazil. Really appreciate your uh, time uh, in terms of uh, uh, examining uh, the political problems in Brazil. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's great. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.